Chaim Shaharazani, and in the news, Israel under attack. While Israel continues to battle with Hamas's terror, the media front, not just social media, seems to be another significant battleground for Israel. Many op-eds have appeared and been published recently about the current escalation in Israel, not just directly relating to it, but also in its historical context. One such piece was published in the New York Times recently by Peter Beinart, editor-at-large of Jewish Currents. The op-ed was titled, Palestinian refugees deserve to return home, Jews should understand. Palestinians refer to the birth of Israel as the Nakba, the catastrophe in which Palestinians were in their view expelled from their homes and lost uh, to Israel. In his essay, Beinart calls to allow Palestinian refugees to return, arguing that acknowledging and beginning to remedy the expulsion by allowing Palestinian refugees to return requires imagining a different kind of country where Palestinians are considered equal citizens, not a demographic threat. In Jewish tradition, return need not be physical. It can also be ethical and spiritual. That means the return of Palestinian refugees, far from necessitating Jewish exile, could be a kind of return for us as well, a return to traditions of memory and justice that the Nakba has evicted from organized Jewish life. Mm -hmm. To put things in historical context, I am pleased to have with us on JBS Gilad Aini. Gilad Aini is a senior research analyst at CAMRA, the Committee for Accuracy in Middle East Reporting and Analysis, a leading media monitoring organization devoted to promoting accurate and balanced coverage of Israel and the Middle East. His thoughts on journalism and the conflict have appeared in Commentary Magazine, The Forward, Columbia Journalism Review, The New York Post, and elsewhere. Gilad, welcome on JBS. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, Shachar. So I, I really want to dive in with you because many a time we hear about these issues of return and the Nakba and some sort of a, a right of return and the demographic issue. So first of all, can you tell us a little bit about what is this Palestinian concept of a Nakba? What is it exactly in their eyes? Well, as you mentioned, uh, the word means, it's, it's the Arabic word for catastrophe. And so in, in the, shortest, the shortest possible number of words, if you wanted to describe it, Nakba refers to the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948. And if you wanted to go a little more in depth, it's the word used to describe the failure on the part of Palestinian Arabs and the broader Arab world in their war to destroy the creation, to prevent the creation of Israel. Um, it, late in 1947, uh, the, the UN came out with its partition plan which was a compromise plan meant to sort of satisfy uh, the, the national aspirations of both the, the Jewish people and the Palestinian people. Um, and, and the compromise was they can both have a state where they can both uh, steer their own course. Now the Palestinians and, and the Arab world rejected this compromise. And after, uh, immediately after the, the announcement of the partition plan, Palestinians started attacking Jews um, in, in the Holy Land. And several months later, Arab countries, the, the, the neighboring countries, Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, and others joined the fight against Israel. Now the launch of that war, and, and I guess specifically the loss of that war by the Arab side, and the flight of so many Palestinians to those countries who were attacking Israel, really did nothing good for Palestinian society. So, so I guess you could say it, it was a catastrophic result for them. 
And when Peter Beinart speaks about expulsion, talk to us a little bit about that concept of expulsion, because he's also mentioning in his piece that there were hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who were expelled or fled in terror during Israel's founding. What was the place of this you know, um, expulsion campaign by Israel? Well, in his piece, Peter talks about, um, as you said, 700,000 who were expelled or fled. Those were his words. And... You know, that's, that's, that's the, the number uh, we can quibble with. Some estimates say 580,000 Palestinians, some say 700,000. And so the, the numerical part isn't necessarily what's deceptive. Um, but here's what we often see with, with in Peter Beinart's essays. He chooses his words very carefully and too often they, they seem meant to misinform. So when he says expelled or fled, he's trying to give a particular impression to readers and it's not, uh, as is often the case, it's not the impression that actually reflects the facts. So the overwhelming majority of Palestinian refugees, uh, the Palestinians, this, let's call it 700,000 uh, to sort of work with his assumption, these were, they were not expelled by Israeli forces. Many did flee from the fighting. Uh, it's, it's not pleasant to be in, in a, a war, particularly a civil war. Um, many took the lead of Palestinian, the Palestinian leadership. So those in, in high positions in, in the Palestinian elite were able to leave their homes extremely early and um, sort of give the impression of, of flight or abandoning the, the land. And so when, when poor Palestinians saw this, they thought, you know, th this might be the right thing to do. This is, this is probably important to, to do. So, so they sort of followed the leaders. Others followed uh, explicit instructions from Arab leaders that there, there were uh, statements by, by the, the Arab leadership um, and invading armies calling for people to evacuate, uh, for women and children to evacuate. And the idea was, you know, they didn't want civilians in the way while they went on to destroy Israel, they would win the war and then all these civilians would come back. And, and all these groups, particularly those fleeing war, this accounts for most an overwhelming majority of the Palestinian refugees. Now, that doesn't mean there were no expulsions in any cases. There were some cases, especially in very militarily sensitive areas. So um, villages along uh, uh, important routes or along the border where, you know, the border of Lebanon, where armies were expected to come in and invade Israel, where Israeli troops did remove Palestinians. Um, now, one thing Peter doesn't account for in his sort of reference to the, the flight uh, or expulsion is that there were Arabs who did remain in Israel after the war and not a single Jew remained in territory that was conquered by Arab armies. Right. That's, that's very correct. No mention of the almost 1 million Jewish refugees who were ethnically cleansed from the Arab world and had to you know, find refuge, come back home to Israel. He does mention though, Gilad, um, he says without the mass expulsion, he says mass expulsion of Palestinians in 1948, Zionist leaders would have had neither the land nor the large Jewish majority necessary to create a viable Jewish state. So he's really pointing the finger here. Well, there he goes again. I was talking about the sort of deceptive, um, precise wording that Beinart uses. And so whereas at first he talks about flight and expulsion, which you know, even though he gives them equal weight and they shouldn't have equal weight, at least it acknowledges all the factors. Later on, he decides to change the impression even more. No more flight, only expulsion. Um, he refers to the partition plan. He makes an allegation about the partition plan saying that, you know, this couldn't have worked and the Zionists the whole time um, 
knew that they wouldn't be able to, what did he say? They wouldn't be able to have a viable state without um, what happened in the war. Um, so maybe, uh, maybe a quick bit of background. What was the partition plan? It was- yeah, I, I actually was about to ask you about that because it's important to shed light onto it. What the uh, Jewish leadership said about the partition plan, how much of Israel would the Jews have gotten had it uh, gone through and why, you know, what happened uh, when the Arabs said no? That's very important to understand. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So um, as, as, as you mentioned, as I mentioned earlier in 47, um, you know, the UN wanted to sort of create this compromise plan meant to give both parties um, what, you know, they, they claim to want, uh, which is sort of national aspirations, or what the Jews said they wanted, they wanted a homeland, they, they wanted to, to sort of have a sovereign state where Jews could uh, chart their own course. And this was, you know, there's there obvious reasons why this was at the forefront of the world's mind in 1947, um, just two years after the end of the of World War Two. Uh, the, the Jewish leadership said, Yes, absolutely. You know, there, there, were, there was a long history of, of talk about what would be ideal. Um, it wasn't a partition plan. The Jews would have loved to, to be, be, be um, you know, would have loved to have the, the UN and the international community get behind the idea of a larger space for the Jewish homeland. Um, but they accepted it. Um, and, and the Arab world and the Palestinians said no, because the idea wasn't just that. And in fact, at the time, the Palestinians weren't in the Arab world weren't necessarily considered their own people. There, there was this view that the Arab nation was one nation. Uh, and so the idea was we can't have a Jewish state in the Middle East. They rejected the partition plan. And like I said earlier, immediately went to war. Now, keep in mind that this, the state of Israel today is a, almost an imperceptible sliver of land when you compare it to the Arab world. When, when you look at the landmass of Israel and compare it to the landmass of Arab League countries, it's not 1% of the size of the Arab League. Israel is 0.1%. So one-tenth of 1% of the size of the Arab League. Um, that's, that's, as I said, a, a sliver of land, but it was unacceptable. Now, in, in the partition plan relative to what the, the Palestinian Arabs would have gotten, it was roughly divided equally. The, the land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea was roughly divided 50-50 um, quantitatively. Qualitatively, you could argue that it wasn't equal because much of the Jewish state was the Negev desert, which is, is extremely harsh uh, climate, harsh geology, um, but, you know, qualitatively 50-50. And, and you're right, the Jews accepted the compromise despite that, and, and the Palestinians rejected it. And what, what this means was if Palestinians had accepted the compromise way back in 1947, and if they hadn't gone to war to, to stop the compromise, Today, there would be a Palestinian state. The thing that so much of the world is calling for would exist. There would have been a Palestinian state living alongside a Jewish state. The reason why that's not the case is because this rejection of the partition plan. And which, which was followed up by continuous uh, rejections over the years up to very recently. I, um, one element of that essay pertains to the word refugees. Um, he does not elaborate on what a Palestinian refugee is and what the return of those refugees means. So maybe you can shed some light on what is today defined as a Palestinian refugee. How is it generally defined? How is it different in the Palestinian context? And how significant is it to understanding what he's actually saying? Good question. Um, there's, a, there's a specific definition used to describe Palestinian refugees today that, that, that 
describes only Palestinian refugees today. And that, that's a definition drawn up by a UN organization called UNRWA um, to, to classify who should be considered a refugee. And that classifies who should be allowed um, in Palestinian refugee camps and given rations from the UN. And that de description refers to um, not just the Palestinians who, who lost their homes in the fighting in 1948, um, which, you know, if it was, if it, were 700,000 at the time. Today, there's probably, you know, 30,000 is a realistic estimate. Could be a, a little bit more, but, but you know, that was 1948, that was a long time ago. And so there aren't many people who, were, who, who lost their homes. So the, the definition today being used to describe Palestinian refugees is actually those original refugees and then their children and their children's children and all of their descendants. And so the idea now is that there are what, 7 million uh, people who are classified as uh, refugees in the world. That's not generally the way refugees- uh, Isn't the number of refugees supposed to come down over the years? Exactly, the, the, the idea in, in the international community is that a refugee problem is a problem that needs to be addressed and they either get repatriated in, in their new countries or they, they um, are given new homes or, or they get to return to their old countries or a combination of all of these. And, and that, the, um, that was exactly the case with the Jewish refugees who were ethnically cleansed. Absolutely, the, the Jewish refugees were, were in a sense refugees for a moment because, they, because Israel was willing to absorb them. And that's part of the importance of the, of the existence of the state of Israel. There was a state that was not only willing to absorb them, that, that was committed and whose mission was to absorb them. And so, you know, when, when my father and his family was, was uh, effectively forced out of Iraq um, at gunpoint with the rest of the Jewish community in, in 1952, they went from Baghdad, lost their homes, lost everything they had, they were refugees, immediately were absorbed by Israel, were given a, a home, at first in a tent and, and eventually um, a home. Um, and their refugee status was addressed, was redressed. The problem is that in much of the Arab world, and, and this sort of stems back to the idea that the most important thing for, for many in the Arab world is, is not necessarily taking care of the Palestinians, but rejecting Israel's existence. That same idea that led to the rejection of the compromise. And so because of that idea in the Arab world, the, idea, the, the thinking was, we don't want to absorb the refugees. We want to keep them in refugee camps. We want to keep them as sort of this open, Soar this 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 ongoing grievance to make sure that they're going to continue to demand to wipe Israel off the the map. So it's a kind I, I of a bargaining chip. I'm sorry. A bargaining chip in the uh, in the power play. Bargaining chip without actually wanting to bargain with the other side. But but yes, they, they were used they were used as chips for for uh, eliminating Israel. And instead of taking my word for, for you know, because that's a pretty grave charge that they want to harm Palestinians or they want to use Palestinians as a tool to eliminate Israel as opposed to helping out the Palestinians. So I do, I want to quote, you know, I want to quote the first generation of people who are making the same demand that Peter Beinart is now making, this demand for a, quote, right of return. Um, I, the words of a former foreign uh, minister in Egypt were, were very telling. He said, about the demand for a right of return. He said, to put it quite clearly, the intention is the extermination of Israel, period. Those were his words. And he was far from the only one. There was a conference about refugees in Syria where the, the, those who attended the conference resolved that they needed to, quote, ensure the refugees' right to annihilate Israel. 
Gamal Nasser said, if the Arabs return to Israel, Israel will cease to exist. And that was his goal. That was a good thing. Peter's version, uh, you know, the words you read from Peter sound a lot gentler than what these, these, um, th this first generation was saying, but it's the same demand. It's the same intent. It's, it's only different packaging. And when you talk about the plight of those Palestinians, the original refugees and their families over the years in different Arab states, we also remember that in places like Lebanon, they're, they're being kept in, in uh, camps. That they don't receive work permits to work within Lebanon itself to avoid any potential integration. Some of the camps have been attacked during the war in Syria. I mean, we're talking about, you know, plights of people that in, because of this focus uh, supposedly on Israel, nobody really takes care of those people. It's tragic that the level of discrimination against Palestinians in, in Lebanon, probably in particular, is, is, is shocking. And what's also shocking is that nobody who, who purports to care about Palestinians seems to care all that much about Palestinians hold up in, in refugee camps in Lebanon, prevented, uh, you know, from, from working, as you said, from basic rights. And, and uh, you know, this has been the, the situation for these guys since 1947, 48. And that's the real tragedy here. I mean, that people uh, choose to focus on something completely different while neglecting, truly neglecting, the plights of many people out there. I, I want to ask you something about this concept that appears um, usually thrown at people, the right of return. Is there such a right of any refugee to return anywhere? Has it ever been implemented in, in world history? And is it possible to, uh, you know, turn the hands of time backwards when it comes to conflicts? Maybe elaborate a little bit about that. Yeah, the way it tends to work in history, and, and there's a long, unfortunately, a long full history of warfare in, in this world we're living in, and often that results in refugees. And the way it tends to work is that there, there are population transfers. Ultimately, the, the hope and idea is that, uh, is that the, the population who, who um, left their homes, for example, the Jewish refugees, for example, my father, uh, end up with, with a secure home somewhere else, um, there, you know, after World War II. And this is exactly the same time period, don't forget, as the, as the Israel's independence war, there were huge population transfers that, that were sort of endorsed or, or, or promoted by the international community. Uh, India and Pakistan, right? The formation of, of Pakistan, similar idea. Pakistani uh, Indian Muslims at the time that, that the British were, were leaving, it sound familiar, um, felt like they would have a, a more secure, a more fulfilling existence if instead of being a, a small minority in predominantly Hindu um, India, they could have their own state. Um, now there's a huge war. Ultimately, Indian Muslims fled to Pakistan. Hindus in Pakistan fled to India. And, and that was, you know, there was a lot of suffering, I'm sure, in that population transfer. But that was kind of the norm for most of American history. Uh, and, you know, you ask, the, the second part of your question is very interesting. Can you turn back the clock? It's actually impossible, but the, the homes that were in question are, are not existent. The, the Jewish state does exist. It is understood at this point that the demand, it's understood because, because of all those admissions, that the demand for a right of return is meant to um, get rid of a sovereign Jewish state, to get to, to make Jews a minority 
in Israel in the same way that uh, we are everywhere else in the world with all the, with all the dangers that comes with that. Um, and so there, there will be no turning back the clock. You know, Israelis will, will not say um, we feel comfortable, you know, living as a minority in, amongst a, a population that voted for Hamas uh, that's currently raining rockets on on, on uh, Israeli cities and whose leader just urged Palestinians to buy a five shekel knife and go find a Jew and cut their heads off. This was, uh, uh, you know, a quote from just a week or two ago. Um, so, so what he's calling for, what, what Peter Banner is demanding isn't going to happen, but what he's doing is sort of perpetuating this fantasy, perpetuating this, this belief that Israel can be wiped off the map but demographically. And uh, I'm, I'm afraid essays like that are just going to prolong the conflict and, and, and discourage the compromise that's ultimately going to be needed. And, you know, there's something particularly ironic. If you look closely at Peter's essay, and this, this often happens, you, you know, he, he's, he's good with words, and it, you have to stare at it for a minute, and you start to see things that kind of don't make sense. And so in Peter's essay, in, in the New York Times article we're talking about, he, he, you quoted this in the beginning, he waxes poetic about the historical Jewish desire for a return to their homeland. And, and he does that in order to convince us all that we should want an influx of Palestinians into Israel. But later in that same, that exact same essay, when he talks about the idea of Jews moving back to Sheikh Jarrah, which is the neighborhood in Jerusalem um, uh, where there's that, the uh, planned eviction of four Palestinian families who have chosen not to pay rent. In that same essay, he opposes the idea of Jews moving to East Jerusalem accusing Israel of wanting to make Jerusalem a Jewish city and, and casting that as a bad thing. So in the same essay that he says it's a good thing to make Israel a Palestinian state, he says it's a bad thing for Jews to be in Jerusalem, you know, in case this might Judaize as, as, as opponents of the Jewish presence in Jerusalem use. Judaize Judea. Um, so, so is he a believer in, in people returning, uh, you know, sharing the land and returning to, to their homes or is he an opponent? What it turns out is that he's opponent of Jews uh, living in Jerusalem alongside Arabs, but he's a proponent of Palestinians uh, demographically overwhelming uh, uh, the Jewish state and creating one large Palestinian state instead of sharing the space with a Palestinian state and a Jewish state. So again, it's the same demand, the same intent as the Arab leaders who talked about annihilating Israel, but different packaging. You know, um, it's, it's a very important point to mention because uh, Peter Beinart is using this soft language, um, trying to tie it in supposedly to Jewish tradition, hiding the uh, intent uh, behind those words. And somebody who doesn't know or is not familiar with the nuances of what we're talking about here may fall victim to that kind of, uh, that kind of use of words and the, uh, you know, descriptions that don't necessarily reflect reality on the ground. So what advice would you go give to our many viewers who sit and listen to you, are very impressed with your knowledge? What can we do, what can they do to educate themselves and to empower themselves against those kinds of op-eds? Because by far, Peter Beinart is not the only one using this tactic. I think you're absolutely right. As you read it, it feels as if he's calling simply for Palestinians to be able to immigrate to a homeland, just like Jews wanted to immigrate to a homeland. That's how he sells it intentionally. But that's not what he's actually describing, right? He, in the piece, he's not describing a homeland, which Israel now has. And, and you know, if 
the West Bank and Gaza became a Palestinian state, Israel would remain a homeland to which Jews can go. That's not what he's describing for the Palestinians. What he's actually describing when you look closely and when you read closely is replacing the Jewish state. So we can all get behind the idea uh, perhaps that Palestinians should have a homeland the same way we want one. And, and he sort of bait and switches us, right? He lures us in with this idea and then springs on us. But really what I want is to replace the Jewish, uh, the Jewish nation state, not to give the Palestinians a state. They could have what he's calling for, but that's not actually what he's calling for. And so you're right. We, First of all, we all need to understand, and, and this is a prerequisite, unfortunately, to, to sort of navigate the, the inf often inflamed conversations about the conflict. We all need to understand, and we need for our friends to understand that too many people out there want to eliminate Israel. And again, they're calling to eliminate 0.004% of the world's land mass, the, the sliver of land where Jews are able to steer their own fate as a people. And too many people out there are also willing to mislead and deceive the public in order to achieve this goal, which is something, unfortunately, that I find Peter Beinart consistently doing. Uh, I remember when he, he rushed to accuse the Jews uh, in Israel of a pogrom uh, because there was a, there was a fire in, in some fields in Israel. Turned out there were bonfires lit by Jews to celebrate Lagba Omer as, as, as is the Jewish tradition, right? They, they um, commemorate the holiday by lighting bonfires. That's the only thing that happened at the time. And Peter rushed to Twitter where he has a huge following and charged the Jews with a pogrom. This is, this is the kind of sort of deception we see. It's interesting that as soon as Beinart came out as an opponent of Israel's existence, the New York Times brought him on as a... Um, as a contributing op-ed writer. And, and you know, it suggests to me that, that there, there's sort of an appetite for, for um, you know, in the mainstream media for, for calls to eliminate Israel. And the fact-checking becomes secondary at that point. Right. And so people are stuck having to sort of navigate this and figure out what to do and figure out how to educate themselves. And, and it's hard to keep up, right? The, the opponents of Israel, like Peter Beinart, take this on as a full-time job misleading people about Israel's history, about the reality today. And we see this, of course, with the, with the unfortunate uh, fighting currently, that this misinformation is 24-7. And people who, who have normal lives, who have jobs, who have kids to attend to, who, 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 who you know, are well-rounded, don't have 24-7 to do this. So it's a challenge. And what I would say is one thing we can do is, is the, the, organiza the organization I work for, as you said, CAMERA, the Committee for Accuracy in Middle East Reporting and Analysis, is working 24-7 to fact check, to expose, and to rebut these type of falsehoods and distortions, and to um, correspond with editors to call for corrections, uh, which we get hundreds per year of. And to try to sort of hold the line, the, the state of the media is problematic. In the UK, it's worse. Um, the, the, in the US, it can continue to devolve. It can sort of get pushback. We're here to do pushback. But at the same time, we're publicizing everything we're saying to editors, right? We're, we're publicizing our fact checks. We're reading the news um, on a daily basis and posting some of what we're seeing on our website. So I would definitely suggest people visit camera.org. It's, it's our website and to sort of stay, you know, keep themselves informed a few minutes a day to, to sort of get a sense of the techniques that are used in the media and too much of the media to sort of tilt the 
conversation to skew the narrative and, and to inform themselves and to just not hesitate to, to speak up. This is an atmosphere, not just regarding Israel today, but the political atmosphere in the country coming from all directions is, is, can be rather extreme. People want to, to shut their opponents up. They, they don't want sort of a healthy conversation that, that, that shines light on, on uh, what's missing in one narrative, what's being misrepresented. And so people, you know, it, it's a hard thing to do. But, but, very, but a very important part of the conversation today, and that needs to be a part of it. You know, Gilad, what you just mentioned about Peter Beinert in the New York Times reminds me of a certain op-ed published in the same outlet. I believe it was around 2011, when the renowned um, Zionist and philosopher, not really, Muammar Gaddafi of Libya, published an op-ed about Israelstein, a uh, vision for, uh, which if you think that's exactly what Peter Beinart is talking about, so definitely within the uh, halls of the New York Times, there is a great appetite to see uh, uh, Israel changing its form from a Jewish state into a, a prelude of its um, uh, disappearance of the world stage. We're very thankful for your insights. I just want to invite our viewers to follow you on Twitter, Gilad Aini, I-N-I, and uh, what you will be able to receive the information you need. And the most important thing I learned today from my conversation with you, Gilad, is when such issues or accusations are hurled at you or thrown into the air, no matter what language is used, there is no immediate need to acknowledge its truthfulness. It's okay to say, let me look into it. I need to really dig deep and see what's correct and what's not. Is there a right of return? What does it really mean? And I think that really has to be part of the conversation. So thank you so much for joining us. It was my pleasure. It was a pleasure speaking with you, and I hope to see you again. And to all of our viewers, I'd like to say thank you very much for watching. I hope you were educated as much as I was. Stay safe, stay happy, and stay healthy. And always remember, things in the Middle East are never as simple as they try to tell you they are. For JBS, I'm Shachar Azani. Until next time, see you soon. Shalom and later.